So yeah, we just had our annual fundraising banquet April 22nd, and so we made that video and showed that there. Um, so, but I wanted to share with you all this morning as well, just to give you a little uh, idea of, you know, just kind of a, yeah, a visual. We uh, spend usually about eight months, eight or nine months in Malawi as a family, and every year we come back, uh, usually for two or three months in America. My wife is actually from Kenya, and so we'll stop by and see her family on the way back to America, and so that's kind of our, you know, annual schedule. Um, just to kind of give you an idea uh, of what our life, you know, looks like a bit. You know, a lot, a lot of you, you know, you probably know us a little bit from the, you know, three or four other times that have come, but just in case there's anyone that uh, is, you know, kind of meeting us or the ministry a bit for the first time, just wanted to introduce that a little bit. Um, so, yeah, this is, it's the first and only long-term trauma counseling safe home in the country of Malawi. Malawi is in southeastern Africa, um, country of about 20 million people. And uh, so I, you know, won't go into the, the details of how we got started, because <laughs> that would take a while. Um, but in case you haven't seen, we have an, uh, an hour-long documentary on, you can find it on YouTube if you type Win the Saints, the documentary that, that kind of tells the story of how the ministry got started and, and what exactly we do. Um, so, so yeah, we have four dormitories, this building in the back is the fourth dormitory. The other three are actually over, kind of off. You can see the third one, but there are two more. So uh, we just opened dorm four in February, and it's our first two-story building. The first story is actually six offices for our trauma counselors. We have a team. We just hired two more, so we have a team of eight long, like, uh, tr you know, trauma counselors. Um, and so they, we were getting short on offices, and so we decided to combine uh, dorm four with, with six offices for our counselors. So on the second floor, that's where 18 girls can live. So we went from a maximum capacity of 54 up to 72 that we can have it at any one time in our program. Uh, so yeah, we're slowly growing from 54. It usually takes a couple months um, to do new case assessments. Um, we, I'll show you a map um, in the next, or another photo. Um, but yeah, we were given 12 acres worth of land uh, where our trauma counseling safe home and the main administrative building is that I just showed you. And then um, we bought uh, a plot of land about 300 yards away from that and, and opened a school in January. I'll show you a photo of that as well in January of 2022, just recently. And then this was a plot of land um, between the two. And so a, about a year and a half ago, we bought uh, this, this plot of land between, and we were able to, to buy, you know, kind of combine these two different areas to make it one big 21-acre, you know, kind of campus that we have now. And so this is the first building that we're building on this new land. Uh, we have uh, a vision to, over the next couple years, slowly uh, build a high school. So we have an elementary and middle school that's now running. And so and this is going to be the chapel, kind of a multi-purpose building of the high school that, that we're working toward building. So, yeah, this is, you know, classes one through four and then five through eight. So this is our, our elementary school, middle school campus, and the students in our, in our school. About two-thirds of them are girls that just come from the community, and then, you know, a third of them are the girls that are in our safe home um, that also attend the school. It's come in the first couple years we've been running. We opened the safe home in 2015, and we would just partner with the local schools in our, in our community. 
Um, but after a girl's, girl has been abused, a lot of times they, they just kind of get bullied and they were facing some challenges. And so that was one of the reasons why we, we moved toward wanting to open up our own school. We just, uh, as a result of our fundraising banquet on April 22nd, we raised the funds that we needed to be able to buy a bus. So we were finally able to identify which bus we'll be buying and, and literally just this last week uh, purchased our, our first school bus for our school. So <laughs> yeah, I wanted to show you that. So yeah, this is what I was talking about. This is the 12-acre campus here, uh, the land that we are given and what, you know, what we've been building over the past few years. And then up here, this blue square is the, uh, the school, the elementary and middle school. And then this, this yellow, where the yellow is pointing, that yellow arrow is the land that we bought in between. You can't see it right now, but the building I just showed you is right there, that multi-purpose um, chapel. It's under the, the blue square. So yeah, here's um, you know, our staff. This picture is a little bit old, but it shows you the girls that were in the program a, a little over a year ago and uh, a lot of our staff. We've actually grown, right now we currently have 57 Malawian staff members that, that you know, run, run the day-to-day -day, uh, of the ministry in Malawi. And then on top of having the uh, trauma counseling safe home, there's actually th three main things that we do as an organization. We evangelize, we go in and show the passion of the Christ and preach the gospel and just village by village, usually about once a month and have usually, you know, three, four, 500 people come to that. Um, and then we you know, started doing that as early as 2011, 2015, we were able to open the long-term trauma counseling safe home. But then in 2018, uh, we just felt the Lord uh, calling us to do discipleship ministry with men, um, you know, because we can focus on trying to bring girls out of abusive situations, but there's still going to be, you know, kind of the same number of men wanting to abuse the same number of girls. And so indirectly through the success of bringing girls out of abusive situations, we could actually be, you know, creating a void where, you know, traffickers could actually just bring other girls to fill those, that kind of open position that we created. And so, and the Holy Spirit helped us understand the only true sustainable, you know, solution in kind of seeing a reduction in cases of abuse have to involve the hearts of men being transformed by the gospel. And so, we're actually about to launch our 12th. We have 12 or 11 right now and about to have 12 different groups in villages surrounding the safe home of men. Usually anywhere from 10 to 70 men will come. <laughs> Yeah, so on any given week, we have, you know, 250, 300 men coming together to, to just learn, you know, study scripture, learn what it means to walk in sexual integrity, uh, to be a man that honors women, treats them with dignity, uh, you know, and, and is, is God-honoring and glorifying in the way that he interacts uh, with girls and, and women in his community. And so this is one of our, our, uh, our men's ministry groups. This is our board president, Daryl. He came and visited us and... Uh, we distributed a bunch of Bibles <laughs> to this group, <laughs> so they were incredibly happy. <laughs> I think only, we asked who had Bibles, and I think only a few, three or, three or four people raised their hands, so, so now they all had a bunch of Bibles. Um, so yeah, that's a bit of the, you know, update on the organization. Uh, I didn't want to take the whole time to just talk about when the saints, I wanted to spend a little time in the word and preaching a bit of a message. So uh, I'm just going to carry us through uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. All right, you guys ready? <laughs> awesome. When do you normally finish? 
Really? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Perfect. I'll I'll speed through this then. <laughs> um yeah. Yeah, we don't have to spend a ton of time, but uh, let me just read uh verse one, chapter eight. On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Um, and then let's jump to verse 2 as well. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Uh, and then verse 3. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, and he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So this just gives us a bit of context. It's right after uh, Stephen, you know, um, the first martyr uh, is killed at this time. Um, you know, obviously after the death of Jesus. Uh, and Saul, who later becomes Paul, of course, is, is kind of one of the main guys spearheading this, this persecution of arresting Christians. Um, and so the subtitle of this passage is just the church persecuted and scattered, uh, which is obviously intense. You know, it's going to be a good Sunday with a title like the church persecuted and scattered. Uh, but yeah, we'll just be talking about, um, you know, just kind of some, some heavy stuff. Uh, in the next 15, 20 minutes. Um, but yeah, again, this is just a bit of the context. As I was reading verse 1, you know, it talked about how they are going to be scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. It made me think back to, um, I was like, I think I've heard that somewhere before, you know, Judea and Samaria. And, uh, you know, in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 4, you know, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my Father has promised. And then in verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so um, that's the verse that I had been thinking about, you know, where it's like, okay, Judea, Samaria, you know, that order, of, and then the ends of the earth. So I thought, oh, it's interesting that, you know, in chapter 8, all of a sudden, he's saying, now is when you guys are going to be scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, what I talked about in chapter 1. Um, and then, you know, just after following chapter 1 and Jesus saying this and ascending into heaven, Pentecost happens in chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit does fall. And um, part of me wonders this, I don't, you know, I don't see this in the Bible, in, in, in the book of Acts, but part of me wondered if if his disciples would have, you know, listened to the, the words of Jesus in chapter 1. And he's like, okay, God is going to send some kind of gift that, that he's promised. And then, you know, after we receive this gift, Jesus is calling us to be obedient to him and go throughout, like leave Jerusalem, go to Judea, go to Samaria, go to the ends of the earth after we've received this gift. Then Pentecost happens. You know, okay, wow, we've received this gift that Jesus just promised, you know, his father would send. Uh, so, all right, let's take this gift, you know, into the world. So I'm wondering why, you know, six chapters later in chapter 8, they're still all in Jerusalem, it seems, you know, and then this persecution is breaking out. And so, yeah, the question that I was just kind of asking myself is, what if they, in a sense, would have been obedient to Jesus' words after receiving this gift and left Jerusalem and then gone into Judea? Would, would persecution have broken out the way that it did? Obviously, there's no uh, real way of knowing, but 
it just kind of resonated with my heart because um, I feel like there have been times where Jesus has, has kind of, you know, said, okay, I'm going to do this, and then I want you to do this, you know, <laughs> uh, and then he fulfilled his, his end, you know, of like whatever it is that uh, he was doing in my life, bringing freedom to me, uh, and then I'm like, wow, this is really nice. You know, thank you for doing this. Thank you for loving me in this way. Thank you for giving me this gift. And I'm like, I think I'm just going to stay right here, you know, and, and maybe doing the, the second part of what you said I should then do with this gift is going to be uncomfortable or difficult or, you know, challenging. Um, and uh, I think that sometimes, not all persecution, but I think sometimes we face challenges, we face discomfort in our lives, and it's, it's a grace from God to say, hey, you know, like he's nudging us, hey, remember when I said I would do this, and then I said that once I did this, you would do this, and you haven't done that yet? <laughs> you know, sometimes God's grace just makes us a bit uncomfortable to try to remind us, you know, to be obedient to his word. And so... Yeah, if that resonates with you, if you can think back, you know, in a time in your life where it's like, oh, maybe that's what was going on. Maybe that's why I was facing certain challenges or discomfort. Obviously, not every form of persecution is this, you know, God kind of nudging us to be obedient. The Bible promises persecution. I think in, in, in Peter, 1 Peter, it says, if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Um, and so there's definitely, you know, challenges that we face, sufferings that we face that are not always God kind of nudging us. Um, there's definitely different types of, of challenges and persecution and suffering. But I definitely think that some of them, you know, we can ask God for discernment to say, what, what's going on here? You know, what type of sufferings is this? Are you trying to bring something to my mind? You know, are you trying to nudge me to be obedient to you? And so, so yeah, man, my prayer is that as, as you know, you guys do leave even right now that um, you would just be spend some time in prayer and say, is there anything, is there any gift that you've given me that I haven't been faithful uh, to give, you know, to someone? Because a lot of times we can think that God's gifts that are given to us are, are just for us, but he says it's more blessed to give than it is to receive, you know, and he actually says sometimes when we receive gifts and we don't actually, you know, give them on, then we actually lose them ourselves. He says that in Matthew chapter 6, if, if you do not forgive others when they have trespassed against you, then your Father in heaven will not forgive you. you know, and in James chapter 2, if, you're not, if you do not show mercy, then God, when he judges you, will not show mercy. And so it's like, you know, we're receiving grace, we're receiving forgiveness, but if we just think that it's meant to just be this amazing you know, gift that he gives us alone and not something that we then look to other people and say, who else needs this gift? I've received this incredible gift from the Lord. I, I, I don't want to just hold on to it. I want to pass it on. Who around me needs this? Who, who around me needs forgiveness? Who around me needs mercy that I've received from God? That's so important to kind of take that next step and see, you know, Abraham just, you know, God told him, you are going to be a blessing. I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And so, you know, I just pray that that could be our perspective, that our, our relation with the Lord is not just, what, what else can you give me? You know, what else can I just cherish from you? But it's like, yes, let's receive from him and then let's pour out to other people. Amen. Okay, I just wanted to go through this map and a little bit of the context of what's going on here so that we can get a visual. This is obviously Judea. This is Sumeria, you know, Galilee, just a lot of cities, uh, these, these regions that we've heard probably mentioned so much 
Um, but it's, it's, I think it's just really helpful to see, okay, this is Jerusalem. This is where they are. This is where persecution breaks out. Jesus is saying, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, go into all of Judea. Go into all these different cities. Go not only into Judea. Go into Samaria. Go into these cities. And then go to the ends of the earth. Um, a little bit of just history between the Jews and Samaritans. Um, you know, obviously you may, you may know a little bit, but they essentially just hated each other. Uh, the Jews, you know, here in mostly Jerusalem, you know, these surrounding Judean cities, uh, just hated the, the Samarians, the Samaritans in Samaria. Um, and there's a city inside of the region. Judea and Samaria are kind of like, you know, states, <laughs> you know, and then there's cities within states. That would probably be the closest thing that we could, um, or even maybe countries, different countries uh, with cities inside of those countries. And so... Um, you know, oftentimes when Jews would want to travel up into Galilee, they would not pass through Samaria. They would, they would go out of their way, way over here, pass through here, Perea, into De- what, Decapolis. And then like if they wanted to go to Nazareth, they wouldn't just say, hey, let's take the most direct route and go just straight through Samaria into Nazareth. They would go way out of their way to avoid just interacting. You know, it was against the law of Jews to associate with, with um, you know, um, like Gentiles. And so when Jesus all of a sudden is, is like, hey, let's, let's go up into Galilee, and then he, you know, his disciples are like, okay, let's, <laughs> go, let's turn east. And all of a sudden he's like, no, let's just go straight through, you know, and he's interacting, I think, in John chapter 3 with the woman at the well, you know, the Samaritan woman at the well. That's, they're right in the heart of the place that all of his disciples are like, we're not supposed to be here. We hate all of these people, and they hate us. Why is Jesus you know, essentially breaking our laws by associating. It was just like a very uncomfortable experience. Jesus just consistently, you know, time and time again in his stories, you know, we see um, the good Samaritan. He's telling the story uh, and he, he makes the hero of the story a Samaritan that all the people that are, he's teaching are like, you know, the Samaritans are the people that we hate and they hate us. Why would he make, you know, he's just like, Jesus was almost intentionally trying to offend them and making the Samaritans the center of his, you know, affection almost. He's like, what? How how is this guy a Jew? And he's talking so positively about our enemies. And so, and that's just, you know, a little bit of context. The history goes way back. There's a lot of passages that just kind of explain. I won't read them, but, you know, 1 Kings chapter 12, Ezra chapter 4, Nehemiah chapter 4. Essentially, it just explains that Israel is divided into two nations, the Jews and the Israelites. And um, the Israelites are 12 tribes, and they travel up north to Samaria. And the Jews are two tribes, uh, Benjamin and Judah, and they become the Jews. So the Israelites actually break into um, the Jews and um, the Israelites. So the 10 tribes in Samaria, that's their capital city. And then the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, are in Jerusalem. And so it's crazy because the Samaritans are the descendants, you know, they're, they're, they're the Israelites, God's chosen people, that they just, they, they split. There was a lot of hostility between them. Um, and so uh, what, what essentially happened in Syria is, uh, I mean, in, uh, in Samaria is that the Assyrians invaded and uh, took them over and kind of took them into, into bondage and um, essentially just, uh, they kind of assimilated into the Assyrians. They started, you know, worshiping the gods of the Assyrians. And so that's, uh, one of the big reasons why, you know, the Jews in Jerusalem, the b- tribes of Benjamin and Judah, started hating. Even though they're, they're blood descendants, 
You know, it's like you've intermarried with the Assyrians. You've started worshiping their gods. They would refer to them as dogs and half-breeds. And they're like, you're no longer worthy to be called God's chosen people because of these horrible things that you've done that have dishonored God. Even though they're literally, you know, going back, they're, they're brothers, you know, they're, they're family members of one another. And, you know, I think uh, Jesus is, is just showing us through the way that he's interacting, the way that he's speaking positively to the uh, uh, Sumerians. He's just showing us that he's totally broken up, that his chosen people have been split up, have been divided, and are at animosity with one another. And he's just explaining his heart to bring his family back together, you know, to bring redemption, to bring healing. So, um, so yeah, that's just, uh, you know, a bit of the history. I think it even uh, could go all the way back to, you know, maybe it began, I could be wrong, but just with Joseph, you know, being a son, Joseph and Benjamin being a son to Rachel, you know, which was kind of his father's, like, favored wife over Leah, um, you know, and so there's all of a sudden these 10 tribes that are kind of feeling like they're on the outskirts and like they're not, you know, like Joseph gets this technicolor dream code. I, again, I could be wrong, but I think that could be some of where all of this is starting and this division and this animosity between one another uh, goes way back um, to this favoritism shown by one father to a son, you know, and to, and to a wife. Whoo, man. So um, God's grace is a, a very humbling thing. <laughs> when God shows us his grace, um, a lot of times we have a hard enough time loving ourselves. And so all of a sudden God, you know, Romans, I think chapter 2, chapter 3, it just says that God's kindness brings us to a place of repentance. Like, wow, I don't feel worthy of your love. Hmm. You know, I've, I've made all these mistakes. Why would you love me? You know, his grace toward us is, is a humbling thing. And it is meant to bring us to a place of, you know, God, forgive me. <laughs> I'm a man of unclean lips. Your love, your kindness toward me, I'm not deserving of it. Woo! But again, I think that um, we get confronted by Jesus' love. And it humbles us even greater when he then starts to say, hey, you know that grace, you know that love that I've lavished you with? I want you to also be gracious and be loving to the people around you, especially the people that you don't particularly like right now, that you don't think are worthy of your love. You once thought that you weren't worthy of my love. And I softened your heart. I changed your heart. The people that you think around you are not worthy of your love and are also not worthy of my love. I love them too. I'm being gracious to them, and I want you to be gracious. I want you to be loving. It's uh, incredibly challenging. A lot of uh, discomfort, you know, comes into our, our hearts, into our lives. Um, through this, God's saying, I've given you this gift. I don't want you to hold on to it. I want you to give it to someone else. I think a lot of us live in this illusion that if, you know, we can just stay, we can kind of preserve our own comfort. But the reality is, is life is always uncomfortable. <laughs> it's always uncomfortable. I think the reality, the only control that you have is to choose which discomfort you want. <laughs> you want the discomfort of trying to stay and trying to, man, you know, I just... I want to go back to my first love, like when Jesus just was loving me so much and I'm trying to hold on to this gift that he's given me and I'm hoping, it seems to be getting more and more uncomfortable as he's telling me to give it out, but I don't want to, you know? And some of us go our whole lives and we'll die just trying to preserve, you know, trying to get back to how amazing it was when we first received this love from Jesus. And we live in discomfort 
and he's nudging us, and he's bringing persecution against us to say, this is not what I created you for. This is not what I gave you this gift for, to hold on to it for yourself. Or we can choose the discomfort of saying, I'm going to step in. <laughs> I'm going to step into Samaria, you know, where people hate me, and if I'm being honest, I kind of hate them too. I'm going to step in because that's where he's calling me to be obedient, and I'm going to try to love them. It doesn't make any sense to me. I can't do it in my own strength, but I'm going to step in and trust that he's going to do something supernatural that I could never do in my own strength, and it's going to be uncomfortable. So choose your discomfort. <laughs> Which discomfort do you want? So I just want to jump through, uh, you know, verses 4 to 8, because we see Philip doing this. We see Philip stepping in into Samaria. So let's read uh, verse 4. Those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to the city in Samaria, proclaiming the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. <laughs> Again, just knowing the context of Jews and the Samaritans, all of a sudden, this guy Philip, who's a Jew, just shows up in a city in Samaria. And he starts praying over people. He starts preaching the gospel. And they are listening intently. <laughs> like, why, why is this Jew here interacting with us? I got to hear what he has to say. And all of a sudden, there's just some kind of grace for the supernatural uh, to break out, for freedom to come to, to people, for healing to come to people. And um, it's one of the things that I love, you know, when we step into the, that type of discomfort to say, I'm going to give this gift that the Lord has given me away. I'm going to try to find people that also need this gift that I've been, you know, given from God. Um, he is, just moves, you know, supernaturally. He does things that are so unexpected. One uh, example for us, when we first started reaching uh, out to men who are just kind of, you know, uh, assumed to be kind of the enemies of Win the Saints, the ministry that we were doing to help girls who had been abused, you know, there was uh, a lot of temptation to hate the guys that were obviously doing the abuse. Um, and we felt the Lord just saying, go tell them about me, you know, share my grace with them. You know, you may think that they're unworthy of my grace, but I don't think they're unworthy of my grace. It's a free gift. And who are you to say, oh, I deserve this gift, but they don't, you know? And so we, uh, we went to this hotel uh, at the end of the street that everyone in, in our city in Ponella refers to as Devil Street. And um, it's just a line of bars and, uh, yeah, just a place where all kinds of not-so-great things happen. And we knocked on the doors, and uh, we invited men to a free dinner and said, hey, we're going we're gonna to preach the gospel to you. You know, you can come and have this dinner, uh, but it's going to be after about an hour of us, of us sharing the new, good news of Jesus with you. So we had seven guys <laughs> come, like, yeah, I'll have a free dinner. <laughs> and we preached. Uh, by the end, four of them got down on their knees and uh, gave their lives to the Lord. And um, I, it was really uncomfortable for me. I, I thought going into this room, you know, I don't, I don't obviously know the specific histories of the people that were in there, but I thought, how am I going to fight, you know, not being frustrated, you know, not being angry with them? And the moment I, I remember the moment I stepped in the door and I saw their faces, I was just filled with this supernatural, I believe, you know, just like unbelievable compassion. And it totally just caught me off guard, you know. Woo! So I think a lot of... <laughs> You know, Jesus says, like, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I think a lot of times we, we make the discomfort that we think we're going to experience by being obedient to him much greater than it is. 
And sure, it is initially uncomfortable, but when you step into it, he just surprises you so much. So I just wanted to use that example um, to encourage you. You know, think, think in your own life. In what ways um, could I be obedient? You know, in what ways have I not been being obedient uh, to be just faithfully looking for people that I can give the gifts that I've received from the Lord uh, away? So Philip is, a, you know, essentially one of the first missionaries ever <laughs> to carry the gospel uh, out of his city into another city, into, you know, not only Judea. It seemed like he was too excited, just like, <laughs> I, I have this, you know, picture of a conversation he's having with the other disciples. They're like, well, Jesus said we should go to Judea first, you know, and then, yeah, we'll get to Samaria, like, later, you know, maybe a couple years down the road. And Philip's like, no, I'm just going to go straight to, like, I'm just going to go straight to Samaria. It's like, why would you, you know, they're probably all thinking, why would you do that, you know? Um, yeah, sure, Jesus said that, but let's delay that as long as possible, because, yeah, there's just a lot of, you know, a lot of hesitancy, a lot of um, just resistance um, to, the, to stepping into the unknown, you know, stepping into what's fearful for us, stepping into what will cause us to have to put, lose control and put our trust in the Lord. Say, I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust you. Mm. So I just love that Philip was so eager and just rushed <laughs> to say, man, Jesus is calling us here to this, this people that for thousands of years we've hated. Maybe Jesus has some kind of plan to bring restoration and healing. Let's see what that looks like. Mm. So I just love that all the glory gets to go to Jesus. This just completely goes against the way that him, all of his friends, all of his family, literally for gener- like dozens of, probably a dozen generations have all thought. You know, there's, there's no way that Philip can be like, yeah, this was my idea, you know? It's just like, nope, there's no way that I could get past this generations of hatred, you know, uh, in, my own, in my own ability, in my own thinking. I just wanted to share um, one other story real quick, um, and then we'll wrap up. Um, when I was 18, I got invited to serve at a homeless shelter in downtown St. Louis. And uh, I remember, you know, serving food, and uh, as people were going through the line, I remember, remember thinking, just having a lot of judgmental thoughts um, inside of me, just thinking, ah, you know, this person smells horribly. And uh, just kind of in my mind mocking, you know, uh, this person, you know, has very few teeth you know, just kind of, again, being very judgmental, making very judgmental observations. So the people that I was supposedly there to serve <laughs> and to love, uh, I was just, you know, putting myself above them and looking down on them and judging them self-righteously. And um, I just wanted to share that story um, because sometimes as we step into obedience, you know, to the Lord, um, we're going to see things surface in our hearts, and they're not always going to be pretty. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be obedient to the Lord. That is just a way that Jesus wants to sanctify us. He wants to bring those things to the surface so that he can help us see that they're there and deal with them. Because for me, I, I didn't like that, you know, uh, in the sense that, Jesus, this, there's something disgusting in my heart that I don't want to be there. Can you help me remove this, this self-righteousness, this judgmentalism from me? I don't want this to be here. So if, if you have, you know, feelings like that, it doesn't mean, ah, maybe I won't be obedient. no. Allow it to be something to encourage you to be all the more obedient and say, Jesus, what is it that you are going to reveal about my heart that's not of you that you, can, that you can scoop off the top and remove away from me so that when I continue to be obedient to you, those things won't be there. That sin won't be there anymore. So, whew, 
I just wanted to um, uh, end with something that uh, the Lord has been uh, just kind of bringing to my attention quite a bit. Um, and it's really kind of focused on verse 3, you know, just how Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged them off, men and women off, and put them in prison. Just uh, persecution. Um, yeah, I just kind of wanted to end on the reality that uh, there's, there's, you know, persecution. People are still being martyred today in our world. There's an estimate that actually 100,000 people every year die. They give their lives uh, for the sake of just being a Christian in the world today. From the time of Jesus, from this time in Acts till now, there's an estimated 70 million people that have lost their lives because of their faith in Jesus. And, um, you know, I, I think it's just something that's really important for us as Christians to know that is happening in the world today, even, even though it's not our everyday reality. You know, uh, sure, there are, are, are certain kinds of persecution that we may face, you know, politically or whatever it might be um, as Christians, but not to the level of we are scared that someone could break in this, this door and, and shoot us or arrest us, you know, that type. But that is a reality of, of you know, uh, like a, a small percentage of Christians worldwide. There's 2.2 billion Christians in the world. So 100,000 Christians is not a huge, it's a huge number, but it's not a huge percent of Christians globally. Um, but it's definitely, you know, uh, just still uh, a reality. Um, I don't know if you've heard of William Wormbrandt, but he was in Romania. Uh, the communism was coming in, um, and, uh, you know, they were, he was, uh, I think, some, some type of role as a politician, and he was a part of these meetings where they were saying, you know, this is, this is, these are things that are going to start changing uh, here in Romania, and uh, he was, you know, a Christian. His wife leans over to him and says, we're not going to be able to worship Jesus if, if they put all these things into place. You, sh- you need to get up and say something. And he leaned over to his wife and says, if I stand up, you might not have a husband anymore. And her response was, I would rather be a widow than have a husband that's a coward. <laughs> and so he stood up <laughs> and he said, I'm not okay with this. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I want to continue to worship Jesus. And he ends up getting arrested and spends the next 14 years in jail. Woo. Uh, when he got out of jail, he went on to start uh, this organization called The Voice of the Martyrs. And uh, they partnered, you know, with a, a band, DC Talk, <laughs> and they wrote a book uh, called Jesus Freaks. And it's just a story of dozens and dozens of, of people that gave their life for the sake of Jesus uh, and their faith in him. So uh, I wanted to share one. I know I'm a little bit over time, but it's not a very long um, s- story. Um, it comes from China in somewhere between 1966 and 1969, they estimated it happened. Uh, two teenage girls, their names are Chiu and Hisu. Uh, it says that these two Christian girls waited in the Chinese prison yard for their execution. They had decided uh, to submit to death instead of renounce their faith. The executioner came in with a gun uh, in his hand and the guards were following him. Uh, the girls looked up and they were shocked to see that it was their very own pastor that had the gun in his hand. And he had been sentenced to die along with the two girls, but the persecutors tempted him and they promised that they would release him if he shot the girls. And so he accepted their offer. The girls bowed respectfully before their pastor. And one of them said, before you shoot us, we would like to say thank you with our whole hearts. You have meant so much to us by telling us about Jesus. You taught us 
that Christians are sometimes weak and can commit terrible sins, but they can be forgiven again. So when you regret what you're about to do to us, don't despair like Judas did, but instead repent the way that Peter did. God bless you. And remember that our last thought was not one of anger against your failure. Everyone passes through hours of darkness. May God reward you for the good that you have done to us. We die with thankfulness on our lips. They bowed again. The pastor's heart became hardened, and he shot the girls. Uh, And immediately following, the guards behind him shot him. Hmm. And uh, there was a story, you know, not of uh, someone that was martyred in the, in the Jesus Free book, but they said we wanted to just have a special mention of what was happening in Russia. Um, and they just said, some, you know, this, this group of soldiers came in, and, um, and they told everyone in this home church, uh, you know, you can come, you can spit on this Bible, and we'll let you leave. Whoever doesn't, whoever stays, we're going to kill and uh, so about two-thirds of the church got up or in this home church, spat on the Bible, said it's, it's a book of lies, and left. And then the soldiers, they actually took their uniforms off. They had clothes underneath. They sat down, and they said, we're also Christians. <laughs> uh, but there's been so many spies going in these home churches, we wanted to make sure that there weren't any spies here. And we were worshiping, worshiping with people that were willing to give their lives for Jesus. <laughs> they couldn't have been very happy about that. <laughs> uh, but... Um, it was just, uh, you know, this really intense story of, of what was happening. People were being killed. Um, and so I just kind of wanted to leave us all with this challenge. You know, again, it's not our everyday reality, but what if, you know, soldiers came into this, this room and, uh, you know, I don't foresee it. I pray that it never happens, you know, in America. Um, I'm not saying anything political, (laughs) uh, but you know, what if, what if that happened? What if someone came? What if soldiers came in, threw a Bible on the floor and said, whoever comes and spits and says this is a book of lies, we'll let them leave. And whoever stays, we're going to kill. You know, yeah, just think, what would be your response to that? And again, thankfully, you know, I believe that probably no one in this room, uh, it's very unlikely that anyone would face a situation like that. But at the same time, I think it's important for us to just consider Um, and to think about what it is, how how it is that we would respond in a moment like that. You know, do we see our lives and our days from here to the point where we die as more valuable than honoring the name of Jesus and spending eternity with him? You know, Jesus says, if you deny me before man, then I'll deny you in heaven. And I just wanted to leave us um, with this one last quote, um, because it's really challenged me in the last couple weeks as I've been reading these stories, it just says, if you haven't started living for, or sorry, you haven't started living for something until you are prepared to die for it. So you haven't really started living for something until you are prepared to die for it. So that's why I think it's important, you know, to talk about a situation that we'll probably never face, that's highly unlikely, because as we think about it and we consider how we'll act in that moment, it will allow us every day when we wake up to live more for the glory of Jesus. If we make a conviction inside of us to say, I would be willing to give my life for Jesus. At the moment where you're prepared to die for something, that's when you can really truly start to live for it. Woo! (laughs) Come on. I told you it'd be a little intense. (laughs) So yeah, let me uh, just close in prayer.